What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 54 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the HRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode we're speaking with Peps McRae. Peps is the Dean of Learning Design at Ambition Institute, overseeing and designing programs for teachers and teacher educators. He has years of experience as a teacher, school leader, and senior lecturer in teacher education. And today, we're talking about Peps' absolutely fantastic book, Motivated Teaching. It's all about that huge question that's ever-present in teachers' minds, how can I motivate my students? And this book does not disappoint. I know this is a pretty big claim, but in terms of insights per number of words, I reckon that this book, Motivated Teaching, is the best book that I've ever read. And you'll hear in the podcast just how Peps managed to go from 200,000 words worth of notes summarizing the insights from research on motivation to the 10,000 words that comprise this ultra-concise book. And as a bit of a special feature, at the end of the podcast, Peps and I turn from the topic of motivating students to motivating ourselves and share a bit about our own habits, routines, and current projects and goals in what I hope is an engaging addition to the usual education-focused content. Additionally, this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. This month, we're featuring the book, The Goldilocks Map by Andrew C. Watson. The last 20 years of research in the area of cognitive sciences has revealed fresh, surprising, and useful insights into how and why our students learn. However, the last 20 years and beyond have also seen a proliferation of dubious advice, lots of instructional recommendations that claim to be based on cognitive science, but that are actually misleading or trumped up claims. So the question is, how is the average teacher supposed to navigate this tricky territory? Well, This is the topic of this book, The Goldilocks Map, and the book offers a specific and practical approach to critically examining sources, research, and ourselves as teachers in order to develop the skills necessary to be effective research skeptics. This book has been endorsed by several experts in the field whose work I've enjoyed and appreciated in the past, so The Goldilocks Map is well worth a look. If you can get your hands on the Goldilocks map or any other John Cat educational book for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERRR30 at checkout. And that code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William has referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. Again, for 30% off any John Cat educational book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. And now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 54 of the Education Research Reading Room podcast with Peps McRae. Peps McRae, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Lovely to be here, Ollie. Very excited. Wonderful. Well, let's jump straight in. If you meet someone new, Peps, and they say, hi, Peps, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Yeah, so I help teachers to get better. I think that's bottom line. And I, I end up doing that in a number of different ways. So I work for an organization called Ambition Institute, which is a uh, like a large scale national provider of professional development for 
teachers and school leaders in, in the UK. Um, and so I help teachers to get better through that. I'm the dean of the design team there. And so I think really, really hard about the the shape of the programs, the experience of the programs, and also like the content of those programs, what, what it is, what's the most important thing for teachers to learn about and practice in order to help them to get better. Yeah, on the side, I like writing books as well, because that keeps me sharp and helps me to continue to learn about what it is, again, that you know, it was useful for teachers to know and try to figure out how we kind of wrestle that evidence into a, sh- a form that's easily digestible and actionable as well, that people can you know, read it in a sitting and then begin to do something about over a period of time. Wonderful. Well, you've just touched on a few things that we'll dig into a little bit more in a second. But first, I'll ask the customary question, what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Oh, man, that's a hard question I like to open with. But yeah, and one we don't like, we don't have consensus on. Oh, don't have consensus on as a as a sector. Um, and I've got like a lot of respect for all of the different views. But probably the one that interests me most, shall I say, is like the the macro view, perhaps that comes from a perspective. Whenever you like step back and look at how our species has evolved over like a long period of time, and so. You know, there is an argument that what makes humans different is not really our, like, intelligence or certainly not our, like, physical capacities. You know, like a, a chimp could, like, really beat us easily in any fight. <laughs> and, you know, if you, like, transported, a like, a, a thousand babies and, like, reared them in the jungle without access to, like, our modern culture, then you know, they, they just wouldn't they wouldn't be able to compete with our modern species. Um, what makes us successful as a species has been our ability to accumulate and pass down like, really great ideas over generations. Um, sort of that We've never seen that bef- happen before in any other species to the same extent, at least. Um, and it has like, served us incredibly well. We have driven down child mortality. We have you know, driven down poverty. We have increased uh, quality of life. Um, all, all we've you know, created, a, created multiple civilizations over years, like done loads and loads of stuff. And it really is all because we have passed down that, that knowledge that we've figured out to the next generation. Uh, that knowledge which isn't easily discovered by yourself, not easily like cracked and figured out. You know, it took a long time to figure out Pythagoras, never mind all the other stuff that, we, uh, that, that is important to us. And so like I, for, for me, that's one of the main purposes of school is to act as a vehicle to make sure that the important knowledge that we hold as a civilization gets passed on to the next generation so that we can continue to be successful and make good choices uh, about about yeah our, our world the world we live in cool are there any particular it seems like this is kind of something you've talked about a little bit thought thought about quite a bit I, I should say um in terms of like the idea of passing knowledge down and things like that are there any particular like books or anything you found really interesting in the, in that space uh, so the yeah, there's there's one there's one book I think is is a nice starter place, which is by Steve Stewart Williams. I think it's called the Ape that Understood the Universe, something like that. And the book opens with a really nice thought piece around this idea that there's a bunch of aliens that come to observe Earth, 
and you know they come like twenty thousand years ago and they see all these different species and nothing really remarkable is happening and then they come back you know present day and all of a sudden this like one species has just done all this crazy stuff built these skyscrapers shipped the land like colonizing you know space to a certain degree and there's no clear explanation they can't see any difference between like you know twenty thousand years ago and now um, and the whole yeah the whole idea is that it's this like cultural ratchet that is that is happening that continues every generation to accumulate like knowledge and wisdom which enables us to have as a species greater agency over our world love it i love that term cultural ratchet i don't know if that's yours or from the book but um it's a good one that's from that's from tim urban we put why he's got a, a great it's a, he's got a great blog on it i think it's uh, part of his Neuralink series, uh, he talks about the human colossus. So, yeah, worth checking that out as well. Awesome. Well, very broad place to start the podcast. <laughs> uh, very ambitious place to start the podcast. And, and in fact, I'm keen to ask you more about – sorry, that was probably the worst segue, the most cheesy segue I've ever done. But I was keen to ask you about the Ambition Institute because, I mean, I've, I've done a little bit of – looked in a bit of some of your work, and particularly I spent quite a bit of time – checking out your learning curriculum, which is now, I believe, in uh, version 3.0. So tell us a little bit more. You kind of mentioned before. Tell us a bit more about the Ambition Institute and what you do and what you're, what you're aiming to do. Yeah, so uh, Ambition is um, it's like part charity, part academic institution like a university, and then part t- teaching school. And so we try to combine the best elements of all of those things. Uh, you know, our faculty are have been you know excellent teachers themselves we're all really really interested in the research and study that to a you know in, a, in an academic way i'm doing a phd you know harry's doing the same for example other other members of our faculty are and yet we have this like really clear mission across the organization to help teachers to keep getting better so that they can serve their their their, their pupils even better and those three 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 things kind of combine quite well um to create a a culture and a drive and a and a hunger within the organization to do good things on a big scale and so we invest our time in thinking really hard about what kinds of programs and experiences and knowledge the teachers need to know like i mentioned earlier and so you end up with things like harry fletcher woods fellowship in teacher education whereby you know every you know a few times a year he brings uh, takes a cohort you know around about 50 teacher educators on board and helps them to really understand deeply what it what it entails to help teachers to get better and as part of that program they produce materials which the learning curriculum is an example of so they work together as a cohort to basically refine the work that the previous year did and so there's like there's a little bit of an echo of what we just talked about earlier in terms of that cultural ratchet you know <laughs> what harry's doing is uh, you know pulling together a bunch of really smart people to help them iterate on the thinking that you know they have done the year before and over time we start to build up um, a body of knowledge that is is useful for teacher educators in a very specific you know with the learning curriculum that's a very specific body of knowledge you know how to teach the science of learning but you know, of course, that's just an example of the, the broader work that we do at Ambition. Um, other, you know, we have a master's in expert teaching as well, which is really exciting. Nick Rose uh, and Kyle Bailey and Emma Lark, a few others lead on that. It's a great program again, like similar kind of cohort size, fairly small, like 50 to 100 every, you know, twice a year, every year, something like that, who think incredibly deeply about assessment, cognition, instruction, motivation, and probably quite novelly for a master's degree, have someone quite, quite intense, intense coaching to help them apply that knowledge to their practice or figure out how to apply it 
to their practice throughout the program with the view that by the end of the, the two years or however long it takes, not only do they have a really strong understanding of the, like the theory, the, the, the knowledge base that's, that kind of serves teaching, but I've also made some changes to their practice that align really, really well with that evidence with the hope that that translates to improved experiences and outcomes for the pupils in their classroom. And then more recently, we've started to, to support early career teachers. So, for example, in September, we uh, to onboarded about 5,000 early career teachers and mentors onto our early career teachers program, um, which is really exciting, doing stuff at a slightly larger scale, um, doing some really interesting online um, provision as well, using a platform called StepLab, which is run by Josh Goodrich, Goodrich where we're able to support teachers and their mentors to do really high quality instructional coaching kind of at, at a distance as it were. So yeah, loads of great, exciting stuff going on. Great organization, really like thankful to be part of that organization. Great people, really committed. Yeah, what more can I say? Yeah, that's great. And it's, I mean, the full gamut there, you're helping people at the very start of their career. You're helping people who are good teachers become, you know, master teachers and you're helping teacher trainers get even better as well. Quick question, why did you choose to kind of go down that path rather than actual initial teacher education as in like training absolute novices and helping them become accredited teachers? So, so me personally? Or ambition, why, why? you slash ambition. Yeah. Well, okay, so, so with ambition, you know, we that there was a lower hanging fruit to be, like there was more impact for us to have had focusing on, you know, early career early career teachers, more experienced teachers, school leaders, because there wasn't a strong uh, an offering in those spaces, uh, you know, up, up recently in the UK. And so it just made more sense. Like there's, there's already a, like an offering at, in, the, in the ITT space that's been fairly well established, not, not as strong an offering in, in some of the other spaces. For me personally, I have, I have been there. So I spent seven years running a PGC program um, at a university in England. Um, and so, yeah, for me personally, it was a case of, right, I spent a long time doing that and thinking about that and really loved it. Like, it was awesome to support new teachers, but it was important for me to start to think about how I can support teachers who've been there for <laughs> a while as well to help them keep getting better because often they can be neglected. It's like, let's put all of our focus into, you know, teachers at the start of their career. But there's a real, you know, it's a real missed opportunity. You know, teachers can keep getting better throughout their career. But it does entail like some careful thought and support to enable them to do that. And so, yeah, that's why I kind of transitioned to thinking about that more over the last few years. Fantastic. Love it. Now, you're writing, we're talking about one of your books today, but before we get into that, you've written a few books and you describe them as ultra concise books. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's uh, it's partly a bit of a defense mechanism <laughs> to, uh, because they're so short. <laughs> and so it's just really like partly about managing expectations that when people like get their hands on, on the books, it, they're not going to be uh, like huge tomes that are going to keep them going for, for hours and hours and hours. There aren't many words on a page compared to, you know, most other books. Uh, and there aren't many like pages in the book either. And of course, you know, there are some people who feel that it hasn't been a good investment to, to, to like get those books. However, those like those people have been overshadowed by the number of people who've actually really valued the approach. Um, and so like as well as it being a defense mechanism, I think it's something that it's a signpost for people to understand what they're getting here is that it's a 
ultra distilled insight into a like important area of of, of knowledge for, for teachers um yeah and i just it's kind of like i suppose the third point here is that i'm a like a engineer by background originally don't really know how to write any other way <laughs> so it's like yeah highly technical precise concise is just yeah the the kind of form of writing that comes naturally to me and so that's you know where i started when i wrote my first book and it just kind of stuck from there yeah cool i mean i can definitely echo the benefit of this ultra concise approach like i you know i jumped into your book and I just absolutely loved it from the outset. Like the sheer density of insights to the number of words you have to wade through was amazing. And, you know, I must admit, sometimes preparing for these podcasts, it can take me hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, 10 or even 20 hours to read someone's book and you're kind of wading through it because I want to be thorough and get all the good stuff out. But it's like you're wading through a page and it's like, oh, there's an idea and then wait, wait, wait. Oh, there's an idea. But with yours, it was like, oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. And I've done it in about two hours and I was like, oh, ready for the podcast now. So <laughs> in many ways, it would make my job as a podcast host much easier and if, if, if more people wrote in an awkward, concise way. So thanks for that, Peps. All right, so the book we're talking about today is Motivated Teaching. How did you come to write on the topic of motivation and was it like you were like oh i need to do something on motivation and you started to research motivation or you just read heaps of stuff over the years and you were like oh there's lots of insights here in relation to motivation and then it kind of came together yeah so yeah i think it was around like 2015 or so i published the previous book memorable teaching which was really a distillation of what co cognitive science is able to tell us about how people learn um, wasn't the first book to try and do that. You know, Dan Willingham's probably um, done an even more comprehensive and better effort. Um, so I think memorable teaching at that stage was just an attempt to try and pull together some of some of the strands that perhaps were were missing from some of the books out there at that moment, and again provide it in a really really concise manner. But coming out of that experience, so spent about three years or so, well two two and a half years creating that. Coming out of that experience, it felt like I only told part of the story of what it means to teach effectively. Um, there was a piece missing around, at that time, what I felt was a like social, social and emotional dimension. Um, didn't really fully understand exactly what that missing piece looked like, and so just at that stage was like, right, that's where where I'm where I'm heading next. So diving in, and so just started reading mainly around. Um, behavioral economics because behavioral economics was kind of like uh, you know a golden child around that stage you know lots of really cool stuff you know the east framework had kind of just come out uh, some other re like really interesting studies coming through uh, and it was clear there was something in this this like nudge nudge theory stuff and uh, so i was interested in whether there were there was application here to teaching and so spent spent like a year or so just diving deep into behavioral economics literature and originally it was like had this idea that the book would be a book like nudges for teachers something like that um and read all of like the uh, the dodgy literature around like influence and all that kind of stuff as well uh, yeah so well, I must say you, you're not you're not uh, you're not applying that much of it in this podcast, Peps, uh, because you've been talking yourself down right from the start. Um, so <laughs> I want to I want to hear hear more of that come through you as you talk yourself up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's yeah. I'm not necessarily talking myself down. I think what uh, what's important here and what's always important for 
people who don't spend as much time in the literature is to realise that there are different fields have different strengths of evidence that underpin them, I think is really the point I'm trying to make. So compared to cognitive science, the evidence, the strength of evidence that underpins, say, let's just call it behavioural science and social science is much less strong. And that's, you know, partly because it's just a much more complex thing to try and research, right? It's like, you know, it's to a certain degree relatively easy to get somebody in a lab and uh, give them a string of digits and get them to memorize it and do some stuff and then try and re, like, recall, recall that. Whereas when you're talking about trying to identify the impact of feeling like you belong <laughs> to a group, then man, that's like much harder to recreate in, in a set of lab conditions. And so like, it's no surprise that the uh, like cognitive science and science of learning is a little bit ahead of, in terms of like the knowledge base, in terms of or compared, sorry, compared to like more behavioral science stuff. And yet that stuff is as equally important for teachers, right? It's like, it's, you know, not, it's important for, because teaching is a, is a, is a massively social exercise, isn't it? You got like you know, potentially 30 kids in a room with you. There are huge amounts of social dynamics happening. And if we're not taking that into account, then we're not really just like teaching prop, like teaching optimizing our teaching for learning i'd say like we have to take into account the social and emotional and kind of cultural aspects of, of teaching to really do a good job and so that was like that was what the the, the the path of the book so spent about a year looking into behavioral economics and realized at the end of that that you know firstly behavioral economics has, has got like some fairly loose theoretical foundations and it, it um it wasn't enough it just wasn't enough and so then realized that it was like this concept of motivation was right right at the heart of it and came across a paper i think by felden um, that made the link between motivation and cognitive load and that's really when uh, i started to, to 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 see how it all was connected and how it made sense and how we as a teaching profession could begin to think about motivation in a way that we could operationalize, we could like do something about. Because you know, Willingham, Willingham had you know, pr previously laid out this thesis that uh, like what we learn is what we think about, which is you know, and what we think about is really what we attend to. And what Felden had said is that attention is uh, is is like a motivational cost in many ways. Um, and so that's like it drew everything together and got me really excited and then spent like another year, year and a half digging into like the literature all around motivation, um, which included things like belonging, social norms and like autonomy. Yeah. And then at the end of that felt like I was in a position to start to pull it all together and like create a framework for, for teachers to be able to think about all of this stuff. Mm. Which you've done incredibly well, and it's 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 wonderful to think that you know two years of reading onto this stuff is condensed into like something like a hundred or hundred and twenty pages, each of which is you know about a third of a standard page. So it's just amazing how you pack it in. How do you kind of how do you keep track of the ideas that you come across as you go in order to be able to bring them together? Like I've got my own processes for doing this, but I'm really interested in like what you do in terms of your note taking when you're doing this long two-year reading project because it's super easy to forget that first paper you read or the first insight so what do you do to kind of make your notes and keep track of those ideas yeah so i use like a fairly 
simple system. Um, so I'm a Mac user, and I'm a big fan of like plain text productivity. So <laughs> like you know, strip out all of the functionality and leave the bare text alone is the kind of way I do it. Um, so I use a, like a, an app called Folding Text, which is just plain text, but it allows you to collapse sections of text within other sections of text, which basically allows you to create like a hierarchy of, of, of text. And so what I do is I just like make notes, group those notes into different categories, um, and then open another document, this, the same as it, and basically do like a process where I distill the first like set of notes into a second set of notes. The first set of notes uh, is typically around about like 200,000 words, something like that. Um, so, you know, it's a, yeah, if I, yeah, it'll be a pretty big book. And so essentially what I do over a period, it usually takes about a year, year and a half or so, is take those like 200,000 words of notes and just like go through maybe about, I don't know, probably like 20 iterations, something like that, um, to try and get it down to about 10,000 words, which is like 100 pages of my, like, on my books um and that's like so so sometimes i get frustrated when people say ah oh, like you know this book was a rubbish investment because there were so few words and i'm like oh i could have given you so many more words yeah. but i spent i spent like two years about like a year getting rid of like you know 190,000 words for you so you didn't have to spend time on those um but yeah it's just it's like it's very much an engineering approach it's like iterate condense get rid of any wasteful word in there at all so that you're just left with like the the good stuff mm, that's a beautiful process in terms of i mean i'm interested in like how you get that structure in the first place right because the structure kind of emerges over time and you might find actually i need to restructure things or change it all around at some point you kind of alluded to that towards at the, at the end of your book in the in the thank yous but how do you know where to put an idea when you're first building that first two hundred thousand word document yeah, you, you don't, you don't. So, you know, you have to just like the first document, the first word document is just a bunch of different like ideas, all like strung out all over the place. And then you have to just spend like, you know, during those 20 iterations, each one, you, you basically try to pull together, you clump together the ideas you think might be connected. And then, yeah, you do that repeatedly and you learn that actually, oh, that, that idea is, is actually the same as this idea. And you're like, oh, wow, great. They can just come together. Uh, and yeah, and this, these ideas, well, actually, you know, there's something different there. And so a lot of it is just like intellectual, um, I don't know what you call it, just like basically painstaking efforts to try and figure out what the concepts really are when you boil them down. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about like, what what's the word here? <laughs> what's the word that describes all of this stuff? Um, and is there a word that exists or am I going to have to make up a word for all of this stuff? Um, and then, you know, once I've got like a word, right, as a word that describes a list, how am I going to define this really, really clearly? And how does it relate to the other words? And how do these things all relate together? And until I get to a point where I'm really clear on like, these are like the, the big ideas, here's a word for each of them. And they're like sufficient and exhaustive so there's no other there's no other stuff that can be in this like for example motivation there, sh there shouldn't be any other big ideas that sit within this i've covered them all boiled them down into these like important ideas and i've got a really clear understanding of how they all fit together and there's a bigger picture until i get to that point it's like it's no go it's like yeah 
And so finally, you know, get to that point, and then it's just a case of, right, got a really solid framework here. It all hangs together. Everything has a place and a clear identity, and each of those pieces are, like, backed up by tons and tons of literature. Um, bam, got something good here. Right, and now it's just a case of, like, polishing it really, really hard until, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no waste in there, and every word is readable. That's amazing. And I mean, the effort that you put in over those 20 iterations to save time, I mean, immensely time intensive for you, but the saving that you make, you know, multiply the saving of reading, you know, 10,000 versus 200,000 words by the number of people who've read the book. Like that's a huge, huge, huge return on investment, uh, but it's an investment that you've made. So thank you on behalf of myself and all those other people who benefit <laughs> from it. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's nothing here, but I also enjoy the process. So it's like, you know, I, I get a, I get a kick from it as well. It's, there's something nice about it. It feels like a bit like sculpture in some ways. You know, you start with a big block of marble. You know, I'm, no, <laughs> I'm certainly not, not anywhere near as talented as, a, as a, like a sculptor, not trying to claim I'm an artist, but I, it helps me appreciate their work in that, you know, you just like really like obsess over like, do I just like shave off this little tiny corner or not? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk, call you a sculptor of ideas, Peps. Um, so let's, let's go with that. Now, one of the, one of the big ideas that kind of came out at the start, and it's one that you alluded to there in terms of the link between the kind of cognitive and attentional stuff and the motivation was the idea that, and this is from your book, motivation allocates attention based upon the best available investment. So that again for listeners, motivation allocates attention based upon the best available investment. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so I think this is this is like if there's only there's one idea probably that is important to wrap our head around as teachers, it's, 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 it's this I reckon. And the way to probably think about it is just to you know take ourselves to a typical classroom or take ourselves to a, any situation in life <laughs> where we typically find ourselves bombarded. Not bomb, sorry, that bombarded is not the right word surrounded by tons and tons of information okay even like right now you know people listening to the podcast will be you know, listening to me there was likely other information competing for their attention in their environment uh, you know whether they're driving a car or out for a cycle or a run or just you know sitting in their room um, there will be other stuff that's kind of like calling out to them say you know birds flying past people you know external sources of information competing for their attention but also internal like sources you know their brain saying oh you know what are we going to have for lunch you know oh, we're a bit worried about what's going to happen during the rest of the day or hey wasn't this like uh, you know a great thing that happened yesterday it's all of these things are competing for our attention and, are, and we can only really attend to like you know, pretty much one thing at, at a time and so our brain needs some kind of way of triaging all of these opportunities available to us and deciding which one should I attend to? You know, this is a really, really important function for our, our brain to do. And so how does it do it? And so really, I think this is like, this is what motivation is. Motivation is the mechanism, the, the, the mental mechanism that triages all of the opportunities available to us and decides this is where we're going to invest our attention in this moment. And because, and then it needs a, it needs some kind of rubric or it needs some kind of system for, for doing that. And really this is what the, the book is all about is trying, is trying to help people understand like what are the, what are the heuristics or rules of thumb that our brain uses to try and decide like what's the best investment for our attention? Because, and it is an investment thing because, you know, uh, as a species and as same as every other species, like 
we have got a <laughs> a limited set of resources available to us during our life, or probably better like to say, like a we've got a limited amount of attention available during our lifetime, and how we use it directly influences our success during life. Okay, and so um, if we squander that attention, then you know. 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, we would have been less likely to survive. And so our brain does this process of figuring out like, where is best to invest our attention to increase our chances of success. You know, in the past, that would have been like, you know, uh, reproduction, survival. These days, we define our own success um, and we try to, you know, wrestle our attention to, to meet the needs of that. Don't always succeed. We've got some of like a bit of a hangover, uh, evolutionary hangover or some of like the uh, rules of thumb that we've developed over millennia um, that we've got to take account of in the classroom. Mm, that's great. It links to this idea I've been thinking about a bit recently. I've kind of been thinking about attention and how to describe it as well. And the line I came up with is, attention is the currency of the classroom. So attention is the resource that students have at their disposal to spend um, during the classroom time. And they can choose to spend that on what the teacher's doing or on their phone or a fidget spinner or listening to a mate or trying to have a joke or listen to the bird out the window and things like that. And it links very well to kind of a lot of the terminology you've been using in terms of invest and things like that. So, yeah, really interesting. And then what, what you're saying there, motivation as being kind of the, the mechanism that helps students decide or that determines what students are going to spend that attention on is a great link. Yeah, yeah, and and we, you know, we, I think it's a great analogy, and you know, we talk about people's paying attention. We talk about people paying attention, don't we? So, so you know, it's not a, <laughs> it's not, it's not a new, a new metaphor, really. Um, we, you know, in our culture, we do have a kind of a sense that it is there, there is some kind of it is a currency of some description. The thing I think to call out just at this stage, and maybe this is where we head next naturally, but I think it's important is that what what we're not saying here is that people are just doing like a raw economic analysis of what like <laughs> you know, what's the benefit here and what's the cost and the likelihood and what what's what what's what's the best outcome for me it's like just way more complex than that um because partly because our environment is so intractable and so dynamic that things change things are changing so fast we have way less information that we <laughs> would want or or need to be able to make any of those decisions and we just don't have the computational power to be able to do it anyway. Like to be able to figure out in the moment, is it better for me to like pay attention to what I'm going to have for lunch? Is it better for me to pay attention to Pep's talking on the podcast? Is it better for me to pay attention to like the birds like drifting by? Like you couldn't possibly do like the computation required or you don't have the information either on like the value of all of those things and so what we have is these like set of like gigarins or calls them like rules of thumb or heuristics rules of thumb which are like shortcuts that allow us to speedily and without a huge amount of information processing um like make a a, a decent bet on what the best thing to invest in is hmm. fast and frugal i think is what gigarenza calls it exactly yeah, yeah it's a great great phrase isn't it yeah, and I, I guess that's true to the, to the extent that it's also true for making financial decisions for lots of people. You know, you can kind of make financial decisions by literally building a huge model that factors in everything, including the uh, affective things, but people just don't do that. And often, even when people have the information to make better financial decisions, they don't do it and they just fall back on these heuristics. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it applies just as much in the classroom as it does in financial situations. 
Right, right. And this is where, like, this is what has given rise to the field of behavioral economics. <laughs> you know, this is like why it's kind of, you know, flourished so much um, in the, because the model of classical economics that just considered humans as you know, rational decision makers didn't work. <laughs> it didn't, 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 didn't fit the model, didn't fit the curve. Um, whereas behavioral economics acknowledges that uh, yes, there are. Like sometimes we behave irrationally. Although I'd be, you know, I'd contest, I'd contest that a little bit, and I'd say, you know, there's, there's been some some nice writing around what is called like deep rationality, <laughs> which considers like uh, the economical decisions we make from uh, an evolutionary perspective, which basically helps us to understand that the decisions we make, which may be, you know, argued as being ir- irrational, are actually really rational when you look at them from a certain perspective. Yeah. And that's, I think that stuff's really cool. Cool. That's good. Now, one other idea that's kind of foundational um, before we jump into the five drivers that you sketch out is this idea that motivation is a specific response to a situation, not a general trait. Um, could you tell us about this and 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 maybe the misconception that there often exists around this in schools? Yeah, sure. And if we, you know, linking it to the the, the first thing we talked about is really motivation being the the mechanism that helps you to, to make an investment. It makes sense moving on from that, that it's, 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 it's not useful to talk about people being motivated or not, which I think is, you know, certainly personally, I have been guilty of that narrative in the past. And, uh, you know, as a, as a teacher and a, and a teacher educator have you know, just heard that narrative being used in the, in the discourse. Uh, like it's not rare to hear people say, oh, they're not a very motivated person or that person's really motivated. And actually it's not very helpful to use that language because motivation is much more accurate to say like that person is motivated in this particular context, by these particular reasons, towards that particular thing, um, you know, and this is like I know this because my uh, my son is uh, hugely motivated to play Minecraft, and uh, the same per- the very same person uh, is massively lacking in motivation when it comes to putting on his socks, and so it, it definitely can exist in the same person, um, and it depends on the context and and all of those kinds of things. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just helpful to think about motivation as being specific to the situation and our prior experience. And what that does is really nicely it empowers teachers because it suddenly like positions motivation as a thing we can have an influence over, not necessarily control over, but certainly influence over. So it's very empowering. But then it's also a bit daunting as well because you're like, oh, wow, we've got some influence over this, <laughs> you know. Wow, maybe this is you know something I need to have a bit of professional responsibility over as well, and um, which again is why it's important for teachers to like know some of the stuff that's in the book, because I think you know yeah we we do have a bit of a duty as schools to support pupils to have a, a, an optimal motivation towards the things we're trying to teach. Because going back to the very start of the podcast, the things that schools teach aren't necessarily the things that we are motivated to learn naturally. Uh, you know, we are, uh, if we didn't have schools, people would still learn to speak um, and listen and read social cues and you know, navigate and learn about their territory. But if we didn't have schools, people would, the majority of people wouldn't learn to read and write or do mathematics. And so schools serve this function of both providing instruction, you know, passing on those ideas, but also creating the conditions, creating the motivational conditions for people to actually pay attention to and learn those things. And so I think like for me, school 
serve as a dual function of both instruction and motivation. Got it. Um, I guess overcoming that deep rationality that tells the student that this whole, whole writing thing is irrelevant in ev- evolutionary timescales and they're much better chasing after the, the, the person they're interested in the classroom or whatever it may be. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 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 and I think that's a kind of nice way of thinking about it is that to a certain extent, what's happening in the classroom is you're, is a battle between the like forces of evolution that have, you know, been <laughs> honing their, their art for, you know, millions of years. And so as teachers, that's, that's a big battle to take on. <laughs> and so any, any kind of like knowledge that you can bring to that situation to help you, I think is useful. Speaking of that knowledge, so you distill it into five drivers within the book. The first two of those drivers are economic drivers, so we'll continue on that kind of economic theme. And they kind of act on the two sides, looks the, the numerator and the denominator, I guess it is, of the cost-benefit uh, analysis. So one of them, one of these ideas is secure success, and the other one is run routines. Could you tell us a little bit about these as a bit of an introduction and also relate them back to this idea of the cost-benefit analysis? Right, sure. So, you know, the, the very, like I said, you know, our brain kind of deploys these rules of thumb to help us decide where we deploy our attention. And one of the rules of, like, or two of the rules of thumb that it brings into into play are, like, how, 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 reward, like, how rewarding is this thing going to be for me if I deploy my attention towards it and how much is it going to cost me so it's like you say just like a a fairly straight cost benefit analysis um the thing that maybe is a bit more uh, adds a bit of nuance to that uh, and equally is is really important in the classroom is that the benefit of something is also a function of how likely it is to happen yeah, so it's a bit like, you know, playing the lottery is, you know, we'll be happy to win a million quid, but we know that the likelihood of that happening is really low. And so the, the sensible ones of us don't spend a lot of our money on the lottery. And like this kind of similar thing happens in the classroom in that if you have, if you're a pupil and you've had a really low prior success rate in learning a, cer- a certain subject or a topic or in a particular class, then it doesn't really make sense for you to invest your attention, you know, again in that thing. And so that's really what this idea of securing success is all about, is helping pupils to develop a high prior success rate to look back upon so that they can see that this thing is worth investing their attention in because it was worth investing their attention previously or worked out when they did previously. And so it makes, like this makes complete sense, doesn't it? Like as an adult, uh, you know, if you went and tried to like learn to skateboard, Ollie, you know, and you went down to the park and you, like, you know, spent like a month on it, and every time you just like fell off and hurt yourself, and you're not like getting any better, then like you really, like, is it like I would question your sanity about like <laughs> going down repeatedly after that? You know, it's like really, is that really, <laughs> is this really a good thing for you to be investing in? You don't seem to be getting any better. Whereas if you went down to the skate park over the last month and every day you're making progress you know you're getting better and then hey this you know this this is going to be it seems to be a good thing for you and the same is true for maths you know you go in and you constantly fail at maths you know you don't do the stuff you feel like you're a failure man you don't want to invest your attention in that yeah well come on well that would be you'd be crazy to think that you would and yeah this is 
you know, the reality for some pupils in our schools, which is, I think, you know, really sad. Um, and what it means is, like, we have this proportion of learners who get to the end of their compulsory schooling at 16, and they, they just haven't had enough accumulated success. And so they leave, like, not wanting to learn any more maths. It's like, man, so glad to get rid of that. Like, and we've had, what, 11 years to, to work with them, to build their motivation towards it. If we haven't, like, you know, captured it by that stage, I think, yeah, I think we, there's probably, we probably could have done something better. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so that's securing success. It's all about the word that you use in the book uh, is expectancy and increasing that expectancy of success, which, again, is an economic, very economic term. And the, I mean, you, you sketch out ways, you've just emphasized one key way to do that, which is basically to help students experience success so that the, when they look back upon their past efforts, they can think, oh yeah, well, generally when I put in effort here, I've been successful in the past, so I can expect expectancy to be successful in the future. But you also sketch out a few other interesting ways to kind of increase expectancy within the book that kind of supplement this what you call just great teaching and helping students to actually have success. Um, a couple you talk about is the idea of reattribution and also helping students to focus on learning and not performance. I thought these were really interesting ones. So maybe if you want to take us through this, these these couple, and we can start with reattribution. Yeah, yeah. And just to, just to be really clear here, because I think it's important is to call out that like the just great teaching piece is the most important of mm. all <laughs> yeah. in the whole book probably. Like just great teaching is the single biggest tool you have for increasing motivation in your classroom. And, you know, breaking things down, explaining them really well, providing feedback, you know, all those things like will increase the success rate of your learners and therefore have like a massive impact on their motivation. And the reference you use in the book to that just great teaching, the main one is Rosenstein's principles in action, which most listeners have listened have encountered before in the podcast, but yeah, that was a that's a really great one to point people to in terms of um, just great teaching. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And Rosenstein himself talks a lot about like the eighty percent rule. You know, he uses this eighty percent rule of thumb, you know, eighty percent success rate. And I'd say yes, like that's a fairly decent rule of thumb. You might want it to have it even higher at the start because like our formative, our first few experiences have a disproportionate impact on our like calculus as it were and then as as you go on like that uh, like rate stabilizes a little bit yeah and so i mean that's kind of relates to <laughs> i'm going to link this to two things one is that's what lottery machines do they make sure you win a f the first few times so you feel like you're on a streak oh, really? and, and then they make you lose uh, yeah I've, I've, i saw some distribution of winnings over an hour and apparently they do that um but the other thing is the way you framed that 80 percent rosenshine was different to how i'd heard it from before so you talked about it in terms of it's good for students to look back at themselves having an 80 percent success rate but the way that that success rate is usually talked about in terms of rose and shine is if you're if 80 percent of your class get the check for understanding right it's a good time to move on tell me about this distinction yeah so and, and, and there's kind of a link there isn't there because like 80 percent of the class are, are are getting it then like you know 80 like 80% of the pupils, there's an 80% success rate across as a class. So, so there is a difference. I think the, for, for me, the, the key is this like prior success rate because that's, that seems to be the thing that matters. Okay. But do, I mean, when you hear other people talk about it in terms of the class, do you think, oh, that's not what Rosenstein was talking about? I don't know. I don't know. I don't okay. know enough okay. about, about what Rosenstein was trying to say there. But I've heard, I have heard both as well. Mm. 
Well, that's that's a good one. Interpretations. We'll have to explore it. We'll have to explore that one. Cool. So to bring us back, secure success, increase expectancy. Number one thing, and number one thing across the whole book is just great teaching. Help students experience success. But there are other things we can do, and one of them is reattribution. Yeah, yeah. And so what seems to well, there's there's kind of like you know we can secure success as much as we want for a pupil, but actually the def like the notion of success is a, is a subjective one. Um, and so what for one pupil might be success for another pupil might be might be failure. Um, and so we have to as teachers, or we can don't have to, but as teachers, is an opportunity for us to define what success means for pupils. And partly that's about, you know, being just explicit about what you think success means in your classroom. So, you know, if it's, it could well be that actually a pupil getting some questions wrong, but, you know, learning from, from them and, you know, coming back and getting them right over a period of time, that's something that you hold up as like the ultimate model of success. And if pupils understand that, then actually they're going to feel success even when they start to like make mistakes. Mm, so that's that learning, not performance idea. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. And but I think it's just about like you as a, as a teacher framing success, like being really clear, like what success means, because pupils will come to your classroom with with some kind of sense of what success means, but it, it might not be the most useful one. Um, so they might think the only way I'd be I'm successful here is of, like the teacher, you know, calls out my name at the end of the class. If that doesn't happen, then you know I'm a failure, and so you, you know you got to like help them adjust their, their their notion of what success means and to be a useful one. And then like the the further nuance within this is that you know pupils like how pupils attribute the cause of their success seems to matter as well. And so for example, they uh, if a, a pupil is successful, they might think, oh, you know, it's because of the the hard work and the, of the strategies I deployed, or they might say, oh, it's because like you know, I was really lucky, <laughs> or it's because the teacher helped me, or something like that. And actually, how they uh, attribute the, their success matters um, to the expectancy that going forward, the expectancy calculus going forward. Because if they feel that their success was just a product of luck or the teacher helping them, then you know it doesn't really count as a success that they have control over and so won't have as great influence over their motivation going forward. Whereas if they see their success as something uh, that was a product of their own effort and the strategies they deployed, then yeah, this is something I have control over and something I'm more likely to invest attention in in the future. It's a little bit like, you know, going back to the lottery analogy, you know, if we felt we had some more control over the lottery number. On numbers, a streak, you're running hot. Right. Yeah, then they'd, we'd probably invest a lot more, wouldn't we? But, you know, we know that it is largely a product of, of luck. Maybe in those gambling machines, that starts to, like <laughs> like you say, give you a different impression, which increases your like uh, investment in that. Um, but, yes, it's the same student classroom. And so you get this, like, interesting question that arises around, like, failure then as well. You know, when pupils fail in the classroom, is it better to attribute that to uh, their own effort or is it better to attribute that to like you know luck or just you know per teaching or whatever it is? And I'm not like I, I know I've I've come across some like recommendations of what the optimal kind of like recommendation is, but I I'm not sure I'm fully confident that we know yet what the optimal way of framing those things are. I think like the safest bet is as a teacher to try to put as much of the influence over the learning outcomes in the hands of the learners. 
sort of like you know try and try as far as possible to like you know not be biased or to like create a um a, a task that doesn't allow the pupil to basically like apply their understanding and come to like a, a, an outcome so it's like to detach yourself as much from that as possible and just encourage people to understand then that you know a lot of what they're doing is a product of their their effort and strategies that they deploy and i think that like long term that would be that would be my approach mm. yeah it's cool i so i mean to summarize what i got out of that and what i got out of this part of the book if we're wanting to really boost students sense of efficacy and expectation that they're going to be successful we help them to attribute successes to themselves and failures to external things but you know there's a bit of gray area around that that second part there it's interesting because when i was reading your book i was reading it at the same time as good to great by jim collins and one of the ideas in there in terms of what makes a level five leader like really successful leaders is this have you read the book no, uh, it's this. Okay, it's this idea of windows and mirrors. And so, what Jim says is that the most successful leaders attribute their success to windows, that is, factors external to themselves, and they attribute their company's failure to mirrors, that is, themselves, which is actually the complete opposite mm. of of this mo- idea in, the, in in your motivation book. And I was thinking, you know, how how do we how can we square this? How does this <laughs> how does this make sense? And I was thinking, well, actually, to motivate students, most of the time what we probably need to do is to help help them have a sense of more like expectancy and efficacy. But for CEOs, generally the danger is probably too much hubris. And so actually having it flipped around the other way helps to keep them kind of humble. Yeah, helps to keep them humble. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so a couple of things. So like, firstly, yeah, often like CEO, often the outcomes of co- companies is like partly a product of luck and the environment, <laughs> you know, so a, a really successful like CEO is probably not as good as everyone thinks they are. A really like underperforming CEO is probably not as bad as everyone thinks they are either. So, so I think like what, what, what is being described there is a way of like, mitigating the like over over allocation of like control to the ceo a little bit which i think is helpful on the on the flip side this is kind of what i was talking about earlier in, in with pupils i think it's like for me what's probably the most useful rule of thumb to use here is to talk about accurate attribution i suppose more than anything else and so because the more accurately pupils can attribute their success and failure they just like that's the best that's the best long term strategy and i'd say for like a ceo that's a similar kind of thing and so the more like what the the windows and whatever, windows and doors thing is basically a way to try and uh, increase the accuracy by moving it away from like the the currently Bias. quite inaccurate yeah, place to to a place of more accuracy um in 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 those dimensions that they both like they both get get pulled away from and so yeah so the more accurate we can help people to attribute the uh, cause of their success the better it's going to be for them in the long term but as well alongside that as teachers we've got to try and make sure that we provide learning experiences that allow them to have a high degree of control over the situation as well that it's not just like luck is we're trying to like take luck out of the equation as much as possible and try to take like teacher bias or teacher you know the teacher 
factors out of the equation as much as possible as well. Mm, that's great. Uh, and I love your framing of that, the idea that this idea of reattribution, whether it be a teacher doing it or a CEO doing it of themselves, it's a mechanism to gain a greater level of accuracy on the attribution. And so for our demotivated students, their, their bias would be to talk themselves down and not reward themselves for their successes, and it would be the opposite for the CEOs. And so it's just a corrective mechanism uh, at both ends. But fundamentally, the mechanism is pushing them closer to accuracy of attribution there. So that's a great, great framing. I'll just mention passing. One of the things, one of the other great points uh, in this area about expectancy was you talked about how it moves us from kind of like performance to performance to proficiency to identity. So if students have sustained sustained success over time and become proficient, then it actually starts to become part of their identity. And it, perhaps that motivation for academics does actually start to become more of a general trait, rather than a, more than a specific one, or more specific to the specific realm of academics. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting point as well. Yeah. And, and like, I think that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate goal. You know, if you're interested in building motivation, well, if you're interested in helping pupils at all, what you really want to do is, by the time they leave school, have you know, created a thirst for 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 lifelong learning. Um, the you know that, that that kind of initially could be seen as like a, a conflict idea to the very early idea that we introduced around motivation being a very specific thing. You know, now we're talking about you know being somebody being motivated. Like, what, what's going on here? And the, the nuance is that it may be possible for somebody to be motivated in a, in a quite a broad domain, say, for example, motivated towards learning academic content in general, um, but only if they have repeated success in multiple aspects sub of that domain, multiple subdomains within that domain over a long period of time. So that they're basically like being motivated in academically really means being motivated in math, being motivated in English. And even more within that means being motivated to learn fractions and being motivated to learn, like, you know, Pythagoras. So it's like being academically motivated is basically translates to being the reality is you're motivated by all of the subcomponents within that. Um, and it's probably like unlikely that we're ever going to, you know, or there are going to be very few people who end up in that place um, because it's really hard to spread your attention across such a broad, you know, domain. Um, you know, it's likely that you know somebody who's academically motivated is going to be like perhaps less motivated to one of the subdomains, whether that's like art or languages or maths or you know science or whatever it is. Um, but I think the like the ident- like and, and the more motivated, like the more general that motivation becomes, the more it becomes I think part of your identity, um, because you know as humans we tell ourselves stories about who we are. That kind of you know is part of this thing, and so you know if you are successful in fractions, you start to say, hey, you know, I'm a kind of like a fractions person, and then if it happens across all of like the topics within maths, you start to say, well, maybe I'm a maths person, and then you know if it starts to happen across all of your subjects, you start to say, well, maybe I'm a, a person who like learns well, um, and that is you know that'd be an awesome place for our pupils to get to, some point in their career. Couldn't agree more. Coming back to that cost-benefit analysis, the expectancy securing success, that's about increasing the benefit. The next idea, run routines, is about reducing the cost of allocating that attention to academic things. So tell us about how running routines and getting routines working effectively in the classroom helps to reduce that cost. Yeah. So 
so this, I suppose, the place to start here is to think about you know, where this comes from. And, and it comes from the, you know, the, the literature from behavioral economics makes it really clear that when you reduce, when you make things easy, you know, this is from the East framework, when you make things easy, it increases the chance that, that people do things. And you know, software developers have known this for a bunch of years. It's like, you know, make it really easy for people to like find the sign up button to find like the pay button, whatever it is, you know, uh, like Amazon and uh, like uh, websites such like that are all optimized uh, around this. Even Google, the same. Buy with one click, yeah. Right, okay, yeah, exactly. Buy with one click, you got it. Like how easy can we possibly make it? Because the easier we make it, the more likely it is to, to happen. Now, we come up against the, like if we want to apply that principle in school, we come up against some really interesting scenarios because if we just like make the learning really easy, then pupils don't learn anything <laughs> and they don't like feel success and they don't experience success because they haven't made any progress. And so you're like, well, what, is it possible? Like, how can we make it easier for them? And I think the the solution here, the, the way to square this circle is by reducing the effort required by the process of learning so that you can maintain and potentially even increase the challenge provided by the what or the content of the learning. And we can, the way of re reducing the, like the cost or the amount of effort or attention that's required for the process of learning is, the best way to do that is by, is by building routines, is by automating the process of learning. Because we know that the more like, times you do something, the same as with a habit or a routine, um, the, the, the less cognitive like, resource we have to put behind it because it becomes automated. It becomes like the neural connections become consolidated. They fire, they just fire quicker. They fire with less effort. You're able to find them uh, more quickly. And so therefore you have more cognitive bandwidth available. Um, it's just like, you know, when we're, you know, when you learn to drive a car at the start, you're having to think massively hard. You're probably cognitively overloaded. Uh, like, what do I do with the gear stick and the pedals? Whereas, you know, five years later, you find yourself being able to like have a conversation, listen to the radio, like look out the window, daydream. All of those things whilst doing this like massively complicated like set of processes. Um, and so it seems true of classrooms. If you can construct some routines, what it does is it frees up massive amounts of cognitive resource available to be able to think about the actual content. And going back to, you know, the Willingham thesis, what you think about is what you learn. If we can get people to think about the content rather than the process, then it's more likely they're going to learn the stuff that's important for them to know um, that we teach them in school. Love it. Now, we've we've touched, talked about um, routines before in this podcast. I had Tom Bennett on. It was a benefit to have Tom Bennett on. And we talked about routines a lot there in terms of behavior management and things like that. We're taking a different approach here and saying, you know, value of routines for create freeing up cognitive space, automating that other stuff for more learning. But I really liked how you framed routines in your book. You talked about kind of they're made up of a cue and a chain and the cue is, you know, what initiates the chain and the chain is basically the sequence of actions that students take um, that, that, is the, that makes up the routine. And you also gave some explicit advice about what makes good cues. So you talked about good cues as being distinct, multimodal and punchy. Could you dissect those three words a little bit for us? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, 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 you know, habits, routines, like you say, a habit is just a set of actions that you deploy. Routines the same, you know, you, whenever like your alarm clock goes off in the morning, you get up, you go, you brush your teeth. Like a lot of it just happens aut automatically. Or you just automatically without... press snooze and don't notice that you've done that as well. <laughs> that could yeah, be the other routine. Just... 
Right, yeah, exactly. So so that could be the other routine. It depends what your routine is. And you can, like, the beautiful thing is you can make both of those your routine, depending on what you practice most. Um, <laughs> um, we can get on to, like, some of the things you can do to, to, to achieve whichever one of those you want, uh, maybe later. Anyway, so, uh, like, a routine, just like a habit, is a set of, like, a sequence of actions that you take without, like, with minimal thought. But the thing, the cue that triggers it all is a really important piece of that because you remove the cue and that none of that happens. You take your alarm clock away, that the stuff doesn't happen at that particular time. You might at some point wake up and you know, do all those things or whatever, but like it, it doesn't happen in the same kind of way. And so like the, you know, when we think about routines in school, uh, I think the thing perhaps that we don't necessarily think as deeply about is the cue. Um, and the reason it's really important to think about the cue is because the, the more unique that cue is the stronger the the more likely it is going to trigger the associated sequence of actions and so for example in my in a classroom if my cue is like holding up my hand you know if i'm like you know, for example i want to cue a, a routine of putting your books away okay let's just take that as a as like a routine if i want that routine to be cued by putting my hand up like that's a really poor idea like a, i'm not a good cue because putting my hand up like also gets used in other contexts you know i might do it to try and like signal for silence i might try and do it to like ask a question i might do it because i'm yawning all of these things and all like what what it does then is it creates like a degree of ambiguity in people's minds and they think well you putting up the hands to trigger that routine or is it something else and therefore there's like a moment of indecision like as we kind of have explored like a lot of what we're trying to do here is, is to reduce the amount of cognitive load and remove decision uh, costs from the equation. And so therefore, it's like it's, it's much better basically to have a, a cue, a trigger that is highly unique, highly distinct and really punchy that doesn't like require lots of like elaborate, you know, an elaborate dance at the front of the classroom to trigger it. And the more, I think, just like the multimodal piece is because, uh, you know, if I put my hand up to like get people to, people to pack up, like some people just might not be looking at that, like at my hand at that particular point. And so therefore, like it's, you know, if you can combine it with like noise, <laughs> for example, or even like switching off the light, like, you know, a great cue would be uh, to get people to, pupils to pack up. If, you know, the, the classroom's a bit darker so it's winter time it's like switch off the light at the same time as like clapping three times um something like that would would like be a really like distinct cue as long as you weren't using any of those cues for any other routines great love it distinct multimodal and punchy uh, as effect as ingredients uh the anatomy of an effective cue all right so that's the first two ideas the the two economic drivers of motivation expectancy uh, helping students to expect success, and that's that number one um, just great teaching idea, uh, and running routines, reducing the costs of the cognitive costs of students making the investment to learn. The next two ideas you had in the book were social ones. So you had the idea of nudge norms and build belonging. In terms of norms, what are the kind of norms that you've meant, and what are some good ways that teachers can try to build those norms? Yeah, so we could we could probably interchange the word norms for just typical behaviors yeah so it's like maybe a, an easy way to answer that question to think about what are the, the typical desirable behaviors that you'd want to see in your classroom and i think that you know that, that varies to a certain extent but i'd be surprised if most teachers wouldn't be interested in their pupils um, doing things such as uh, like answering questions whenever they're asked 
asking questions whenever they don't understand something, um, like cracking on with the work as soon as it's provided, uh, like paying lots of attention to explanations as they're given, uh, you know, seeking feedback, being open and receptive to feedback, um, you know, being polite, like all of the kind of stuff that we daily want in the classroom. Uh, what was the second part of the question? How do we make that happen? And which relates to the general question of how are norms formed? Yeah, yeah. And, and so like, it's, I think it's important to just peel back a layer here and explain why, why norms are important. And so like, going back to this, this idea that motivation is an attempt to try and invest our attention wisely in, in the environment we live in because it's so like, dynamic and intractable and we have such little information to go on, um, like a good, a really sensible rule of thumb is basically to invest in the same things that other people are investing in. Like that just that's like a really smart idea, isn't it? Like, you know, should I do this thing like that? I just try and like you know analyze from a cost benefit perspective where I don't have very much information and I don't really you know it's changing all the time. Or should I just do the thing that you know eighty eighty percent of everyone else is doing? Well, I'm probably better off doing the thing that eighty percent of people are doing. Um, and we like you know this happens to us all the time whether we're conscious of it or not it's a different question but you know like uh, you know your your book on amazon i'm sure has a bunch of five-star reviews and you know that that will sway people's buying habits whenever they go on amazon they'd be like oh ollie's got like two thousand five-star reviews this is probably a good thing for me to read uh yeah someday it will uh, this is probably a good thing for me to read and that that makes sense whereas you go and you see like somebody else's book that's got one like you know a thousand one-star reviews you're like well you know enough people are saying that it's probably not a good investment. Of course, Amazon can be gamed, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. But the, the point kind of stands, doesn't it? Uh, that it's, it's, it's a good shortcut to have. And so what we see is this, like, translating, uh, in particular t- in situations where there's, like, large groups of people together, there isn't, like, there's a degree of uncertainty about what, like, the best behavior to deploy is. Schools are a classic example of this. And uh, what we see are basically, like, people following the herd. And it's the reason why, you know, my trying to get my son to sit down and like do some writing at the end of the day is nearly impossible. Whereas when he walks into a classroom, uh, his teacher can do that with 30 pupils in the class without, with minimal effort. Like schools literally run on the fuel of social norms. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be, schools would not be possible to exist without the power of social norms. They do so much of the heavy lifting. And yet we, I think like we do such we think so little about that power that we have in our hands and we kind of take it for granted. We just assume, you know, to say this thing and it all happens and don't really like you know, understand the mechanics of why. And therefore we don't like optimize our, our influence over those routines as much as we could do. And so, you know, if we think about like when social norms work best, it's be- it's whenever you have the greatest number of people complying with them. Whenever you've got like 100% compliance, uh, it's very, very difficult for anyone to do something different you know it's like we are we're programmed pretty deeply to conform with the group because like you know 20,000 years ago if we didn't conform to group norms and we got ostracized from the group consequences were pretty high you know probably going to starve probably going to die <laughs> and so like you know these things are are deeply embedded as well you know as that side of things but there's also like you know as a species what makes us successful as well as the cultural ratchet is our ability to cooperate and so there's like a strong incentive like again like instinctive incentive for us to cooperate with other people in a group because you know it benefits us all we the cost benefit calculus uh, gets even higher when we work together as a team so there's all these like kind of forces compelling us to 
uh, work to work effectively as a group. Um, but working effectively as a group only works well whenever people like conform to a certain set of standards or a certain set of norms. Blah 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 blah. So the question is like, what can we do about this in school? Uh, how can we harness the power of social norms? And I'm not sure I've got all the answers to this yet. And I imagine over the next like 10 years or so, there'll be all sorts of other stuff that we figure out. But, you know, it's kind of some of the like lower hanging fruit would be, uh, A, just like try your best to try and get as many people to adopt an, uh, a norm as possible so that, you know, you've got as little like dissent as possible. If you can't do that, then maybe point to towards um, an emerging norm. So that seems to have an impact uh, like trends, you know, like this seems to be a, you know, in the, in in my class, increasingly people are putting up their hand to ask a question. Like that that seems to have an impact on other people's psychology and, and their preference for that thing. Um, we can increase the visibility or the salience of norms so that people like think they are bigger than they are to a certain extent. So we can do that by highlighting desirable behavior when it occurs. So, you know, just like pointing out, like, you know, Pete over there is, is is doing this thing that's really desirable, like telling stories about that to other classes, even when it's not there. Uh, you know, if you're still teaching on Zoom, then like capturing that on video, whatever, like doing everything you can to magnify that, that, that social norm. And um, like I said, pointing towards um, trends. And then I think there's another piece around attitudes as well. So we're influenced not only by what other people do, but what their attitudes are and so if you can like help your like, the class understand that you know in this class there seems to be a lot of people who are really eager to learn this stuff uh, you know their attitude towards it is really positive then that that can have a big effect the, the, the nuance just to call out here is that it's really important to emphasize what we want to happen rather than what we don't want to happen um the the kind of classic pitfall that I've certainly found myself falling into here is um, if we take the example of homework and, you know I say I set some homework some week and you know a low proportion of pupils actually do it for whatever reason and then the next week or the next day I come in and I say look class look team you know most of you didn't do your homework here this is not good like sort yourselves out what, what I'm essentially signaling to the whole class is that the norm here the new emerging norm here is not to do your homework and so for those few people who have done their homework they're starting to feel oh my goodness i'm potentially not part of this group anymore <laughs> and you know i'm i'm actually disincentivizing like them to do it and for the rest of the group they're like oh well you know we're part of we're part of the group here we're not doing the, the homework same as everyone else excellent you know so yeah yeah that no that's a great point it reminds me i'm I was looking at the way that politicians answer questions a few years back and I learned that they follow this rule that, you know, if someone asks a question that kind of challenges them, you know, makes a, a challenging remark, they won't actually repeat what the person says, you know, oh, it's not actually true that climate change is a real serious issue, blah, blah, blah. They won't actually repeat the point. They'll actually just say, that's not true, and then they'll move on to their point to reduce the exposure to that idea. So, yeah, it's very, very aligned with what, what you're talking about there. And, and one line from your book that really summarises this is, the norms that we hold arise predominantly from our observation of others. To modify mod motivation, we must change what our pupils see. And so, yeah, we've just gone through a number of ways to change what pupils see, but essentially emphasising um those things that we want to be the norms within the classroom in any way we can do that um, is going to be beneficial. Yeah. Just the, like last thing to add in here, which I think is important, Ollie, is that like there's a, 
I'm sure there's a be a temptation by some to to distort the ethics of the situation here, distort the truth. A bit like, you know, you've talked about politics earlier. It's sometimes um yeah, like there have been presidents recently who've claimed that, you know, their their rallies are the biggest rallies ever to try and, you know, harness that that social norm effect. And actually what you see potentially even in that situation is that it backfires. Whenever you try to abuse reality, you end up only losing trust, which actually has a, a kind of trust is a really big factor in this whole equation as well. And so, you know, as a school, you kind of have to like, you can't lie about it. <laughs> you know, 100% of our pupils did homework last night. Like, like you just, If that's not true, that's not going to work. It's only going to come back to bite you at some point. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast that you're looking for, and listen back from that exact point at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary includes my summary of the key ideas from this conversation, and a reflection of how I've used these key ideas in my classroom recently. For those of you who listened to my coaching episode with Jim Knight, you know that I was having trouble with the focus of one of my classes. However, after this discussion with Peps, I went away and applied some of his advice the very next day, which just happened to be the first lesson of Term 2 with this class. We're now four weeks into Term 2 with him. I've been continuing to apply these strategies, and I'm very happy to report that they've been working consistently much better. This is a total revelation for me, and in this month's takeaways, I talk exactly about how I use advice from Peps, as well as advice from James Hanscom in the previous episode, as well as advice from Tom Bennett many episodes ago on behavior management to have this recent success with this class. So if you'd like a memorable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, then go to patreon.com forward slash ERR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 USD per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Peps McRae. Hmm. Next idea is is build belonging. Let's whip through this one. Three tips in one minute, <laughs> <laughs> such that teach to help teachers build a sense of belonging in the classroom. Yeah. So I'm going to spend thirty seconds of this on the like the the mechanics of it on, because like, I think it's important for teachers to understand why belonging is important. I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> So, yeah, like going back to the original hypothesis, you know, actually, but no, well, let's, let's, let's link on to the social norms piece. So, uh, you know, we said that, like, you know, conforming within the group is important or conforming to, like, other people's behavior has an impact on us. However, that's not 100% true. It's other people's behavior within a group who we feel part of has an effect on us. So actually, in a, in like a, a group or even a classroom, if we don't feel part of that group, social norms are just going to wash over us, yeah? Or, or we might even, like, you know, resist them. So if we, like, feel like we don't identify with that group and the group are doing this thing, actually, we might want to do the complete opposite because we want to distance ourselves from that group. And so belonging is a thing that mediates social norms. 
And you can build belonging. Here's your three tips. You build belonging by giving pupils a status within a group. So, you know, making sure that they have like, they, they feel like they have a role to play. They have like a, you know, an identity within the group, their name, they've got responsibility. You know, they are seen that they're, uh, you can make sure that uh, the group is inclusive. So everyone's part of the in-joke. You know, you're part of the, the contribution you get to the spoils, the rewards of what the group achieves. You're not left out, all those kinds of things. And then finally, I'd say like, um, having a common purpose that you can all rally behind is, is it can be really powerful as well. And so, like as a teacher, you can set that common purpose, um, and yeah, that 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 gives people a a shared bit of background that allows them to feel a greater sense of belonging. Because one of the things that influences belonging is basically affinity. Like, how much do I feel that person is like me has a big impact on whether you feel part of that group or not. And, um, you know, if you come across, classic, if you come across, when you're an adult, come across somebody who grew up in the same town as you, you immediately, like, you know, feel like you belong to them more for some kind of strange reason. Yeah, there you go. And so, yeah, any ways we can, like, in the classroom, help pupils to see the things that um, are common between them can be beneficial, especially because if we leave that to like its own devices, pupils can end up like finding common ground based on very superficial characteristics, which, you know, isn't great for society at large. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Belonging is a mediator of norms and people norms only enforce behavior or reinforce or support behavior uh, if people actually feel a sense of belonging to that group and it can act opposite if they don't feel that sense of belonging. Great point. That's how, that's how Twitter works, isn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah, very true. Yep. Yeah, if you feel part of the group, you're going to jump on. And if you don't, then you're going to fight against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people police, like there's a self-policing thing that happens, which is really powerful. And the same like, you know, happens in classroom. If you can get pupils to feel part of a group, then they will police the norms for you. If that mm. makes sense. Mm. They will like ostracize people if they don't conform to, you know, the group norms, stuff like that. Anyway. Fascinating stuff. Love it. Uh, all right. So the four drives we've discussed so far are secure success, run routines, nudge norms, and build belonging. Great alliteration there, Peps. I must <laughs> must commend you for that. Uh, the final one. So the first two were economic ones. The second two were social ones. And this final driver of motivation is a metacognitive driver of motivation. And continuing with our alliteration, the idea here is boost buy-in. So... What do you mean by boost buy-in, Peps? Yeah. So how to come at this is really um, – well, let's introduce a little bit of theory to the, the framework here. So framework relies on, like, you know, some classical economics, some behavioral economics, but also from, like, behavioral, behavioral research slash educational research. We're also leaning heavily on two, two, two big theories. First is expectancy value cost theory which kind of aligns up really nicely with behavioral economics and the cost-benefit piece, but also like leaning on self-determination theory, which helps us to understand the you know, power of mastery, which is the you know, secure success, and the, the, the belonging social norms piece. But the third part of, which is like relatedness, I think is used within SDT. But the third um, piece of SDT is autonomy. Okay, so this idea that, you know, it's kind of, demonstrated at least in adult workplaces that the more autonomy an employee has the more motivated they are uh, at work and again a bit like the routines piece when we try to apply this to a classroom context uh, we run up against a few problems because pupils aren't 
by the, the very definition of school or the nature of school, pupils aren't experts in what they are like there to, to do. They, they're not experts in what or how to learn effectively. Um, and so by giving them, if we give pupils too much autonomy, we would really be robbing them of, you know, the, the value offer that school provides. It's a bit similar to like medicine. You know, you don't go to your doctor and expect to be given lots of autonomy in that situation. Like, you know, you, you don't want your doctor turning around going, hey, what, what do you think the best pres- like prescription for you should be? Like you would worry a lot <laughs> if you were given that kind of autonomy. And so I think the point here is that Yes, choice can be motivating, but you know, when we have too many options, it's not meaningful. And when we have options that are outside of our like expertise, that's not very meaningful either. And so in a classroom situation, we can, you know, we can provide choice in some limited aspects, bounded choices it's called. Like here are a few different options for you know how what you might focus your essay on, blah, blah, blah. But actually I think what's much more powerful is for teachers to make the choice on behalf of pupils. And instead, invest their energy in helping pupils to understand the value of that choice for them, the benefits of the choice for them. Um, And that just entails uh, teachers like taking the time to do that repeatedly, um, because I think as because of like our position as subject experts and experts in learning, um, we tend to take for granted the benefits of learning. Um, there's the curse of knowledge piece there, which means that we just don't explain it as much as I think we could probably benefit from doing. And so just getting into a habit of explaining the why, here's why we're learning this, here's why it might be of benefit to you, and doing that regularly is probably going to have like a positive influence on, on motivation along the way. And if you do that repeatedly, what you start to do it's a really interesting thing. What you start to do is to help pupils understand the mechanics of schooling as well. So if you're like, well, we're going to be learning this in this way because what you're essentially doing is explaining like the mechanics of teaching and learning. And all of a sudden they start to develop like a, a, a kind of metacognitive understanding of the situation. So, for example, if I like said to pupils, look, we're going to do this in this particular way so that you can have a high success rate so that you can continue to be motivated by this. What they're learning is like whenever they leave school, it's important for them to like look after their prior success rate if they want to continue to be motivated towards that particular thing. And so I think like the explain the why is really powerful because not only does it build buy-in, it increases motivation, but it also builds this like capacity for pupils to continue to motivate themselves and learn when you're not in the room and for me that's the 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 ultimate gift that you can give a pupil 100 that aligns really well with that final point um the ultimate gift that you can give a pupil is help them learn effectively when you're not in the room one of my favorite answers to the question at the start which which i which i asked you which was what what should be the purpose of school-based education came from george zonios and he said as teachers we should be able to you know confidently and proudly answer the question what happens when we stop pushing so yeah, that's really aligned there, and and boost buy-in and explaining that why. That's a really, really great point. One of the other things you did in the book was you tied in motivation with this idea of behaviour management, and the way that you put it, which I thought was really nice, was motivation is an upstream cause of behaviour. And you talked about where schools focus their focus their issues either at motivation or behaviour kind of management. Um, could you just unpack that for us a little bit as kind of a, a bit of a wrap up to this? The, the part of the interview focusing on your book. Sure. And I'm going to steal an analogy from the Heath 
one of the Heath brothers, I can't remember which one. So one of the Heath brothers might be Chip Heath wrote a book or released a book last year called Upstream, which has this concept right at its heart. And they opened the book by talking about this, like, you know, it's kind of, is a parable? I don't know, like a little story of um, two, two people who are just walking along by a river and they see a, like a child like floating along half drowning and so they jump in they save the child and then another one is like comes along and they jump in and they're constantly like jumping into the river um dragging these these kids out and then at some point one of the one of the people just starts walking walking up the river and the other person says hey where are you going what are you doing we've got these got these kids to save and uh, the person says, I'm, I'm going to go up and like stop the person who's throwing the, the kids in. <laughs> and so, you know, like the, the book is worth worth a read. Um, up, it's called Upstream by Heath Brothers or Chip Heath. And actually all of the Heath books, Heath Brother books are awesome. Like Switch and Moments and uh, like Make It Stick. But the, like the, the general idea is that sometimes we invest our efforts too far down, downstream Um uh, or, or we could we could be investing our efforts further upstream, which would pay off more in the long term. If that makes sense, be a be- better allocation of resources. And for me, really, that is like a helpful way of thinking about the relationship between motivation and behaviour. Because when we talk about behaviour in school, often what we're talking about is is the visible side of things. So it's like what you can see happening. Whereas often what we see happening is like a downstream effect of what pupils are thinking about, which is much less visible, much like harder, like less, much harder to get like a tangible grip on. But if we can change what they're thinking and feeling, then like the we're going to like change their behavior in every instance. So like to make it really concrete, let's try and make it really concrete. If instead of me, like, you know, if, if a pupil consistently doesn't do their homework, Instead of me, like after they haven't done their homework, like trying to tackle that by saying, look, come on, you got to keep doing your homework. You got to do your homework, blah, blah, blah. If we go upstream and try and identify, like, actually, the reason they're not doing their homework is because nobody else in the class is doing their homework <laughs> and, uh, and like tackle that uh, like heuristic, then that will probably solve the problem. And we don't have to like continually hassle and we don't have to try and change the behavior. We change the motivation and the behavior changes automatically. Not sure if that's the best example, but hopefully it gives you a flavor of what we're, what we're trying to get at here. Hmm. Yeah. And a really good point you made in the book was, uh, this is another quote, from page 114, achieving, you know, achieving this, this focus on the upstream takes planning and resolve the sheer visibility and immediacy of behavior means that in the busy environment of the classroom, the work of building motivation can easily get pushed to one side. I think that's just such a great point because it is like we can get into this pattern of reaction and it's kind of like survival mode. And I mean, students do this when they're kind of preparing for tests in their final years of school Mm -hmm. and they're reacting to the next test that comes up, but they actually need to go upstream and prepare a little bit earlier. And similarly, we can't just react to student behavior. We actually have to take that step back and say, where's this coming from? Right. Hackett, there was a Saru... He, you know, talked about hacking at the roots rather than the leaves. Mm. Just mangled the quote there badly, but yeah, I think there's something in there. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and it's also, um, I don't know, this this idea is quoted to attributed to lots of people, but the idea of, you know, if you're given an hour to to cut down a tree, you spend 50 minutes or so sharpening your axe, and then um, right. and then you jump into it. And that um, that Chip and Dan Heath or Chip Heath stream story from before. I think that might originally come from Desmond Tutu. Right. The quote there is, there comes a point 
where we need to just stop pulling people out of the river, we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. So all linked together. All right, so one one part of the interview that I've really been looking forward to, Peps, is taking this a little bit broader. I was looking through your Amazon profile, author profile, and I spotted some pretty interesting things there. There's the there's the habit hacking workbook. There's the the growth journal. And what, what was the other thing? I think there was some even some Christmas, oh, not not Christmas, but some recipe template you you've got in there. Uh, so the, you know this is the the joy of Amazon author profiles. Um, so clearly you're not a person who just applies these things to teaching and learning, but but to life, which you know I would, I would expect nothing less um, from you, Peps. So I, I'm curious to ask, like, what are some of the things? that you're working on in your own life at the moment in terms of getting better, building habits, things like that. And I'd love to know what processes you've developed for getting better as peps. <laughs> cool, man. Like, yeah, fun stuff to talk about. Firstly, just to say that those books were like an experiment. Uh, when I started self-publishing, you know, like maybe like, you know, eight years ago or so, uh, they are not I don't think they're available to purchase anymore. <laughs> But some, because they're, they're not at the same like level of quality as, as the other books. And so uh, I don't feel I don't feel it's it's fair to have them on the shelf, um, like sitting alongside this stuff. But at some point, like a lot of the ideas from within them have, have been like integrated into these books. And someday I might go back to them. Oh, I'm hanging yeah, out because for the, I'm hanging out for the recipe recorder cookbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're my mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like I I I am interested in all of this stuff, uh, not just from a like um you know a pedagogical point of view, but also from also from a life pers- point of view as well. You know, I love learning. Like you know, doing a PhD, done a bunch of masters. Like just learn. Like got a big appetite for learning new stuff and developing my understanding of things I know a little bit about as well and like really fascinated by the role that habits play and norms play and all that kind of stuff motivation plays in my own life and have been you know playing around with that stuff for years and years and years and years and years and years um you know like from the alarm clock thing you know so like we look, look at you know I have well a long time ago I realized that to a certain extent like you're a big part of your life is really the routines that you run like um you know your life tends to repeat um if you live in the same like live in the same place um anyway your life tends to repeat and so you can take a bit of a microscope to those repeating routines and then just refine them to basically set your life up how you want it to be um and so like one of the decisions i made a long time ago was to get up early and do some writing before the kids get up very simple like you know thing uh very simple idea hard to pull off in practice it like definitely took me a few years to like get that routine nailed down like now i can get up really easily every morning when i want and do a bit of like a good good hour, hour and a half of writing before the kids get up and that's like wonderful it adds value to my life allows me to produce books stuff like that process of getting there like yeah it took a long time um like did the alarm thing alarm thing you know basically set an alarm for a certain time bam hit snooze okay doesn't work round two okay so let's uh set an alarm put it over the other side of the room okay bam okay sometimes works yeah that's fine that kind of got me out um challenge then when you have like a partner can't wake her up at the same time so all of a sudden i'm back to like square one again because my you know i'm using like a kind of semi-silent alarm beside the bed which i can snooze and so have to then you know what's the next thing okay so i've got uh uh, a silent alarm beside my bed 
and a really loud alarm at the other side of the room so that I know that I have to get up on the silent alarm and go and silence the loud alarm because I know that if it wakes her up, she's going to be really pissed off. And so I'm like having to hold myself to account through that. And so you do all these like kind of mechanisms that you put in place. Now those, that was useful for establishing the habit. And so, you know, you know, if you can kind of run the routine like, you know, 100 times, maybe even 200 times, then all of a sudden it becomes really automatic. And now I don't need the loud alarm. Like I just have the silent alarm and, you know, I uh, have a really like carefully scripted routine, which is uh, getting into the weeds here and I. So as soon as the alarm goes off, I do like a bit of Wim Hof breathing. So I like do like 20 deep inhales, hold my breath for a bit of time. And then as soon as the final breath's exhaled, like microscripting is like right hand comes over, pulls the duvet off. And then there's like a sit up and get dressed and stuff like that. And all in silence. Do you do push ups? Um, Come so, on, tell me you do push ups after that. Well, <laughs> well the, there is a lot of exercise in my day, but that uh, tends to come a bit later because I find that it's, 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 it's easier to do exercise when there's other people around. It's much harder to do writing when there's other people around. Um, so, and then with the exercise piece, like, yeah, really, like, you know, really keen to push myself to see uh, what I can do physically, like really interested in that, like the body as a, you know, as, as a thing that can adapt to training. Um, really, like, you know, really fascinated by the literature, read lots of literature around that as well. Some really interesting connections between, like, you know, learning and cognition and, and, and physical training and, and performance development. Uh, anyway, yeah, so with that sort of stuff, like, you know, again, lots of overlap here. I find that you can motivate yourself to train far harder when you do it with somebody else or you do it with a club, you know. So you want to get, like, you know, more time spend more time running and get fit that way just go and join a running club like forget yourself a position in that running club become a social secretary like all of a sudden you've got high status in there you've got accountability there's norms like you just it's going to be really hard to like <laughs> pull yourself out of that group so there's things you can do to tweak the architecture of your environment that then end up having an impact on your behavior and like i think that's i just like i think it's really really powerful like what decisions can you make what decisions can you make right right like now spend like 20 minutes making that can have an impact like every day for the next 10 years of your life like that is, this is just like cool stuff for me and so yeah spend a lot of time tweaking tinkering experimenting and like honing 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 like a bit like my books the uh the, the routines in my life that's that's awesome now do you have a kind of schedule for reviewing goal setting things like that so I, I i personally work on like a monthly schedule for trying to check where i'm at in various areas of my life and refine it etc build habits what about you and what's that process look like yeah it's probably more of an um an, an, an annual thing for me i like to kind of set quite long-term goals um so for like typically set myself a, a, a project that's going to take um, usually like between two to four or five years, something like that. So, you know, like do a PhD, going to take like five years, bam. And I'm going to write a book, going to take three years. I'm going to like run, like become an ultra distance runner, bam, going to take about three to four years, something like that. So, because I, th I think like it takes, if you're going to like do something interesting, meaningful, it, it, it like you, you tend to overestimate what you can achieve in six months, but underestimate what you can achieve in two years. I think like maybe I've heard that from Tim Ferriss or somebody. Tony Robbins, maybe. It's Tony Robbins. There you go. So, but yeah, it makes, like I find that to basically be true, and so I tend to set myself like, like longer term goals. 
And in terms of just managing that, I write myself an email once a year and I like have like a snooze function on my email. So I just basically write myself an email, snooze it for a year. And what that does is like in a year's time, I get an email from myself saying, here's all the things that you were like, you know, setting out to do a year ago. Here's like what the plan was. Here's what was working well, what wasn't working well. Like, yeah, talk to me about it and then send yourself an email to next year. And I just do that on it. Like I've done that for a you know, maybe 10 years on a yearly basis and that's the thing that kind of keeps me on track because it's very easy to lose direction if you when you set like you know longer term goals like that um yeah and then i've got like there's all sorts of micro like monitoring stuff i got like a habit tracker and all that kind of stuff so i monitor track what i do on like the key variables so like you know sleep's really important exercise really important um eating healthy is really important so those kinds of things i track on a daily basis and i can see my performance like up and down throughout the you know the last five years or so what what do you track um so nutrition is one of the areas that i'm kind of rating myself not as high as i'd like to be at the moment what do you track in terms of nutrition yeah, so so with with, with tr- tracking, like the the thing that I've I've learned is that it, you need to have like a, a really black and white metric that makes sense. So like with with sleep, um, like the it's, it's not I haven't found it useful to track like the number of hours that I sleep. Like it just doesn't because it because it varies. It's like a it's like a kind of continuous variable. What's been much more useful for me is to track like whether I get to bed at a particular time yeah so that's it the thing i track every day is like have i switched off my light at 10 p.m yeah it's really simple so it's like black and white i can like hold myself to account for that um you know with with eating like there's a i think it's even harder it's like you know what i track like you know range of diet like micronutrients macronutrients like well, what is it and so i like, spent like a bunch of years trying to figure out what it is what is the black and white single black and white metric that i can like that has the biggest difference and for me it's basically eating two meals a day <laughs> so, so, so that's what it boils down to is like what else would you do eat one or none or eat or eat, eat or snack so so like you know for me like the the thing that i find to be most productive in terms of my eating habits is uh, like not eating before midday so like you know intermittent fasting and then not snacking yeah and when i do those two things when i don't eat before midday and i don't snack then i a just tend to eat more healthily because uh, you know more switched on when i do go to eat uh, and b it doesn't really matter anyway what i eat <laughs> in those two meals because my body processes it pretty hard because that's all i give it um, and so that's my my metric is like have i only eaten during those two like short half an hour windows or hour windows or whatever it is and then nothing outside of that and that's like i find that really useful because it's clear black and white end of the day i can like yeah give it like a one or a zero and uh, i can see like i can begin to uh, when i'm like not doing as much as i want to i can start to make some like changes mm. have you ever run a correlation between your sleep and your diet yeah 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 i got all the the, the data and all, yeah it all kind of comes together like sleep i think is the probably the, the more causal factor yeah i agree in all of this um so yeah like i'm yeah semi-religious about my sleep <laughs> and and do you go for like a percentage of nights during the month or the time period that you have your light off by 10 or how do you what's the goal so all of these are just defaults yeah so it's like if there's no if there isn't a special like occasion 
I default to that. I default to lights out at 10 o'clock. I default to only eating two meals a day. And then, you know, if I'm out with my mates or there's like a film on, it's fine, break, break the default. But you always fall back on that default. And it ends up, you know, probably being like 80, well, depends. Like 70%, I think, is like over the last five years is the kind of like rough, like percentage. Eating, the eating one has gone up actually over the last few years, like get pretty close to like 90% there. And, but again, if there's like, you know, and brings home some croissants for breakfast, I'll crack into those, turn it into a dirty day, flip it around, eat loads of sugar. So I like, you know, stress in my system a little bit in that way. And then just like fall back to the default the next day. Great. It's good fun, man. It's really good fun. Like, yeah, treating your life as a, as an experiment. Mm, mm. <laughs> so Ollie, I'd be like really interested to hear like from your perspective, are you interested in this kind of stuff? Like what kind of things have you been experimenting with? What insights have you gleaned along the way? Thanks for asking, Peps. Um, I was hoping you'd do that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, this is something that I've definitely been kind of working on for a number of years as well. Um, I've actually had an accountability buddy, my good mate, Alice. Ah, did, uh, did you? Okay, so I like, there's a website, I think, called Accountabilities accountabilitybuddies.com and i like signed up to that for like oh, okay. a bunch of years a few years ago yeah yeah I haven't it didn't like it lasted for like a year or so i had a really good accountability buddy but uh kind of just like disappeared or whatever but yeah like that's a yeah yeah cool one so yeah, anyway cool. alice yeah no i was i was just lucky enough to go to school with alice actually and she's just an amazing like ultra marathon runner um works for the lancet commission on climate change stuff just an absolute you know world changer basically so I'm, I'm lucky enough to go to school with her and we started a bit of a kind of accountability partnership six years ago um it's been going really well start off weekly and then moved to fortnightly and now it's monthly um and you know what i do and what we do in that has changed a lot over time but um the current iteration and it was actually inspired quite a bit by benjamin franklin's autobiography i don't know if you've read or listened to that um can recommend and also it's freely available as a podcast so if you just search like autobiography benjamin franklin it'll come up in any podcast player um but chapter nine in that he has this really cool thing of like how he tried to improve himself and he he listed out like something like eight virtues in a little book and at the end of every day he would like um he would just put a little dot next to anyone that he kind of transgressed against any of those virtues and so he just kind of had these life categories that he wanted to improve upon and then he he did that he improved upon them um and he tracked them so that was one idea this idea of having like kind of life categories and then so I took that and I listed out like 13 categories of my life and I've put them in order of priority. So for example, my relationship with my partner is number one um, and then you know, it goes down from then. And then this other idea that actually Guy Claxton introduced me to was this idea of like ipsative assessment, um, you know, just um, measuring yourself against your, your prior self to try to make process. So, so what I do each month is I just look at those 13 categories and I go down and I just rate myself on each of them on a scale from one to four. And that's just a feeling. That's not like anything. But I just rate myself one to four. And then I look at the top. I start at the top of the list, you know, my relationship with my partner. And I say, is that at a number that I'm happy with at this point in time? And I work my way down. And that helps me identify areas to work on for the following month. And then I have kind of like four columns. One is change the default. One is nudge. One is new habit. And one is project. Okay. And so change the default is basically force a behavior change. So I'll try to find an example. Oh, that's often something like I'll, if I want to have more social stuff, I'll actually just at, right there and then, I uh, like. Join a club. 
yeah, I'll just book it. So, for example, one from the last month was like my fam- my rating on family wasn't as high as I wanted. So, I just sent my family like three uh, Zoom in- Zoom dinner invites just like at the same time and just booked that in. So, that's just changed the default. Nudge is obviously a nudge. So, one of the things I did, I was spending too much time on social media. I just removed all social media icons from my home screen and I said, that's enough. I'll see what change that made and that was really helpful and replaced it with um, other healthier things like space repetition uh, apps and things like that. Build a new habit, that's pretty clear, but I try to limit myself to two new habits a month because I find anything else is too much and then I that's that's the thing that I track. Uh, I've blown it I've blown it out a little bit at the moment. Um, I'm trying a few too many habits, I think, but <laughs> but they're things like, you know, at the moment it's like 20 minutes of German practice, 20 minutes of poetry. 20 minutes on a specific book that I'm reading and things like that. And then I just track that black or white. And then the the final one is just start a new project. And that might just be, it's generally around that allocating time as well, but it's just towards a longer term goal. So it might be a book or something like that. But um, so yeah, it's the basic framework I've come, come up with and I've been running that this year. And yeah, it's been, I've really, really enjoyed it. And what do you like, Specifically, how how do you interact with Alice? Is it like phone call? Do you share your spreadsheet? Yeah, great question. So does she does she have the same or is a system or is different system? She's she's quite she's quite similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar in terms of having life categories and and working from that. But yeah, I just I take a screenshot of of the spreadsheet that I filled out. I'll put that in and then I'll write a monthly reflection and then we'll connect. And before we connect via video, we'll just send our reflections and we'll just read each other's reflection. And then we'll just kind of have a chat about it, kind of stress test some things, help people like a bit of a pre-mortem kind of a thing. What could go wrong when you do this or this or this? And then kind of just congratulate each other on what we did like the month before or whatever. So it's more, it's more of just like a time to do it. It's like if we've booked in a Zoom call, then it's like the hour before I'm like, oh crap, I better do my reflection because I'm about to talk to Alice soon. And if I don't have that date, then it's likely that um, it's going to just fall away. Yeah, really interesting. And have you, you know, your 13 categories, have you found it's kind of like, is it, are you just sh- shuffling around your attention or, or are you seeing like genuine growth across the whole suite? Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, I do a sum of all my numbers mm-hmm. and so that's theoretically a way to kind of measure it so i mean january i was 63 percent peak life february was 69 so that was good moved up march was 75 okay which is positive, it's positive. and then uh, <laughs> april april was back down from 75 to 69 so um, you know, I need to need to kick it up a gear again a bit there, Pez. But I, I think in general, because of the focus on habits, I think, and trying to build that in, that's that's helping. Yeah. Have you read Atomic Habits? I haven't actually read it. No, I'm pretty. Yeah, I think that's it's a nice. Uh, yeah, for me, it's it's stronger than like Do Higgs mm-hmm. work. Yeah, it's a nice. It, it, yeah, it's a pretty actionable and fairly well informed, fairly well informed book. So that's like. A, a good deal of stimulus in there if you're interested in like habit building i'd recommend that yeah thanks i've heard a lot of people think really highly of it i've read a couple of summaries on of it but i should i should definitely get get into the original text and katie milkman has just released a book called how to change i think which is like you know a evidence-informed self-help book and i haven't got my hands on it yet but pretty excited to see what comes out of that cool that sounds great 
All right. Well, that's, that was fun. That was fun. I, I wanted to do that. I thought, I thought it would be a good chat with you, and it definitely was. Lots of, lots of great stuff in there. Dear listeners, just a quick note to let you know that this month, patrons, as well as the usual summary, will also receive an editable copy of the spreadsheet that I use for my monthly goal setting. I'll also include a little video about how to use the spreadsheet and a bit of a recap on how I use it to set goals and try to stick to them. Now, back to the episode with Peps. Oh, one other thing I wanted to ask. Yeah. Why ultra, ultra distance running? Why is that a goal? I'm guessing you used that as an example before. You didn't say it was one of your goals, but I'm guessing it might be at the moment. And if so, why is that a goal for you? Um, yeah, so it's like because I think it's it's always interesting to see how far you can push yourself. Um, and yeah, with with ultra, with ultra, it's like there's always more, <laughs> and it's it's always interesting to see how much you can actually achieve. When you when you set your mind to it, and when you are like you know doing an ultra, you know you're doing like a you know a twelve hour race, whatever, through the mountains. Um, there's a, there's always a bit of time where you get to chat to somebody along the way, you know, whether that's on like a you know, steep incline or whatever. And it, it never feels to surprise me just how relative the whole sport is because you'd be talking to somebody saying, oh, you know, this is like the biggest ultra I've ever done, and they're like, yeah, yeah, next week I'm doing like a six day. Yeah. 600 mile race across the desert whatever (laughs) wherever you are in the pack there's always somebody doing like something massively more extreme than you (laughs) which you know is great because it it, like helps you understand that because you know they're just another human uh, and so they can do it then you can probably do a little bit longer yourself and so yeah i think there's probably a whole lot more we can do as a species and we just have to figure out the create the conditions for that to happen and alongside that like tell us the story that's going to enable us to 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 do that and i think like you know the whole like ultra marathon marathon like stuff is it's just a story that you kind of tell yourselves about like what what exceptional and not exceptional is like everybody can run an ultra marathon just comes down to how like motivated you are to do it how much you want to do it like nobody does it for any reason no point in doing it um um and so like the word ultra is like conveys this sense of like exceptionalism where it's not it's just not really exceptional it's just a, just people going out and running for a long time mm. that's great i'll have to i'll think about it like i said alice is an ultra runner and um she's definitely been talking about the benefits of running for a long time to me but uh I'm always on the bike. Yeah, the the real benefit is just the is just the, the is honestly the challenge of like doing it. It's like you know why is why climb a mountain because it's there. It's like you learn an awful lot about yourself, mm. <laughs> um, and it, you know over a period of a number of years, and it's really interesting to see how your body changes and you know stuff like that. And of course, then like any thing you get into in an extreme way, like there starts to become a bit of an aesthetic dimension to it as well it starts to become beautiful you know a bit like now when i sit down to survey like literature i see a lot of beauty in there and the way it connects together just like when i'm out doing like a long run where you know yeah you find yourself crying eight hours in (laughs) because your feet are falling off or whatever it is you know there's a lot of beauty in that experience too so yeah it makes the world a richer place and when you get in deep into things i think couldn't agree more some closing question peps Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to your first year teacher self? Oh man, uh, go read Dan Willingham's book. Yeah, there you go. Good advice. 
Actually, no one has, no one heretofore has recommended reading a book. I reckon that's a really clever idea. I like that. I like that as a as an option. A few few, few of your favourite tweeters, three or or a couple more, if need be. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I like James Theo. Um, he is the like for me the great educational comedian on Twitter of our generation. Um, so appreciate following him. Enjoy following Caroline Spaulding. She's got not only like a really in-touch, insightful way of thinking about teaching, but also has like huge amounts of integrity and isn't afraid to use her voice on the platform for for good. My favourite, yeah, third, embarrassingly, be Elon Musk. <laughs> I, do, I do enjoy his yeah, eccentric eccentric tweets tweets just something like yeah something very um i get i get sucked in by the clickbaity nature of it <laughs> and he's actually the master of create of, of speaking a norm into existence right like he just says he just says something and it literally changes the world to the tune of billions of dollars in a tweet um right. that, that guy's amazing yeah yeah so so as much like i think i, I find him interesting to follow from as much from a perspective of like social analysis or as like a certain like you know seeing how he has an influence on society as much as for the content or you know him, him himself is there, i just think like twitter itself is a fascinating experiment and when you get such a, uh, somebody with so much power in that group then yeah it becomes even more interesting you, you got to track it haven't you at the very least mm, mm. yeah and his um his biography is a phenomenal book. Like, he's just a ridiculous oh, okay. performer like the, yeah. the 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 way that guy works, you know, it's funny because you have students who are like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be like Elon Musk. And it's like, do you realize how hard <laughs> Elon Musk works? Like, <laughs> that guy does not stop. Um, yeah. That's what you've got to do to be like Elon Musk and take no prisoners. Um, yeah. um, three fave edu books. Right. Okay. Let's have a look on my shelf here. Okay. So, yes. Okay. Leadership for Teacher Learning by Dylan William. 100%. Okay. So, if you're a teacher educator, get on that. It's like you know, probably the most important book you read uh, as a teacher educator. Um, solid covers everything you need to know. And just like Dylan's beautiful like way. It's highly rigorous and readable. Episode 23 of the ERRR podcast for people who want to hear that, hear us talk about that book with Dylan. Yeah, definitely check that out. What else here? Got uh, talked about why students, why don't students like school already? You know, I think that's up there at number one. Uh, massive fan of Dan William. Not only that book, but also his other writing as well. Like he, he wrote a paper, a mental model of the learner, which is I think is probably one of the most important papers I've ever come across. Um, so you know, if you've already checked out the book, then check out that that paper. And then the final one I'd call out is I can't remember the. The, the title of it but it's oh how to make kids cleverer yeah yeah definitely like that's a really interesting really interesting book so if you haven't read that I highly recommend checking that out okay it's about intelligence and stuff right yeah tries to pull together a whole bunch of different themes like some like fairly controversial some hard to wrap your head around and so just applaud like the effort definitely some stuff in there which I imagine people will contest but it doesn't mean that it's not important to be like you know, trying to 
develop a deeper understanding of those issues. And so I think it's like there's, there's value in, in at least like opening up the, the, the debate around some of those things. Mm, yeah, I was a bit afraid to go into that one for that reason. I was worried that I'd come out with ideas that about contentious issues like intelligence that may or may not be fully backed by the evidence. So I was a bit afraid to touch it, but it sounds like you think it's worth going into. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, like you say, you know, you go, like David, I think, does a fairly decent job of trying to provide like a, you know, persp- a window into the evidence. And you know, with all these things, I think it's important that you <laughs> re- rewind as well. Um, but yeah, you know, I think he's he's done a good job there of, of opening up, like I say, opening up the conversation a bit around some interesting issues. Mm. What are you currently excited about? Ooh, okay. So there's a lot to be excited about in the field of teacher education in the UK in particular. Like we have a whole bunch of like new frameworks in the UK from the early career framework, uh, which like, you know, has been really big deal which lays out basically uh, a curriculum for teachers in their second and third year along with you know earmarked support for them in in the during those years to have a time with a mentor um which is like awesome you know it helps bring teacher training one step closer to medicine (laughs) which totally deserves to be it's a long way before we we kind of get to the level of training required or the level of training that, that, that medics have but it's one step closer in that direction which is really important because teaching is a really complex profession there's lots that is useful for teachers to know it's great to see that like you know national framework being like, implemented similarly we have in the uk the release of the national a new suite of national professional qualifications for school leaders which coheres really nicely with the uh, the early career framework and so you know there is an opportunity for the whole school sector to kind of be drawing on a you know, a, a fairly rich evidence base and you know, talking the same language and so potentially having a high degree of coherent action there which is really exciting uh, and then you know possibly the most exciting thing at the minute is the DFE over here have just released a tender for an institute of teaching uh, which is an organization that potentially has the potential depending on how it, how it like uh, what, what, what kind of version of it ends up unfolding has the potential to be a real like engine of uh, acceleration of teacher education and expertise within the UK. Um, so there's lots of lots lots of great things happening in the world of teacher education and incredibly and a brilliant time to be a teacher and a teacher educator in, in the UK and in the world. Um, I'm just really grateful to be in that space and to have the chance to talk to you about all of this, Ollie, and dive into like the, you know, the nerdery of uh, personal development as well, which, uh, yeah, haven't had to, the chance to bore listeners with too much in other podcasts yet. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Uh, final question, any last calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? If you haven't tried fasting, go and try do some fasting. <laughs> well, there's a challenge for me. Yeah. There's a challenge for me. <laughs> All right. Pips McRae, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute joy to speak with you. Um, so much fun. I mean, what you've done with this motivation book, I, I said it to you in my first excited email to you after I'd been reading the book. What you've done is you've provided teachers with a, an invaluable mental model 
of motivation. And in terms of like what we're trying to do in teacher education, one of the key things that I see that we're trying to do is help people have good models of how learning happens, you know, of how the brain works, of things they can do. And good mental models how everything fits together so that when they learn something new, it fits into a schema that they can then apply and adapt effectively in the classroom and elsewhere. And you've just done that. You've done the hard works, the hard work. You've done the 20 iterations. You've you've mapped it down from 200,000 to 10,000 words for us and you've put it into a model that's really easily grasped and, and just super memorable. A perfect example of that was how much of a structured and cohesive mental model of you've delivered here is when I said, oh, you know, give us three quick quick tips on building belonging. And you said, well, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. First off, I need to start with the mechanisms and how it's all tied into the model, you know. And if we could get all teachers to that point where they say, oh, I can't give you the quick tips until I first tell you how it fits into the model, then we'd know that we'd really helped everyone to have that solid mental model. Um, You know, it was joy to speak to you about the kind of self-improvement stuff and also the ideas at the start, deep rationality and and all those kind of economic uh, cost-benefit ideas was a lot of fun as well. So yeah, thanks for coming on, Peps. In terms of motivation, I think one of the things that's most motivating for me is, you know, meeting and having the opportunity to interact with and hear from inspiring people. So I'll be uh, leaving this this podcast more motivated and inspired. And thanks for your time, Peps. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Ali. It's been a blast. And uh, yeah, you have stimulated me to go and find an accountability buddy again. I think that's uh, what I'm going to take away from this as well as all, all, all the other stuff. Have a great day. You do, Babs. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Peps McRae. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of the link to the John Cat website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from John Cat. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.